It's Thursday, February 15th, and this was a loss no one had prepared for. We start here. More than 20 people are shot at a Super Bowl victory parade. All of a sudden, people started crushing forward. Everybody started running. There was screaming. With schools out, several of these victims were children. Our team was there as it turns deadly. A congressman sparks fear of Russian space battles. It would also be like launching World War III. It would be a really big deal. What we know about the classified report that has gripped Washington. And if the government has the regulatory power it needs, why do we keep seeing accidents on on Boeing planes. Frankly, uh, I have concerns and the uh, FAA has concerns about the safety culture at Boeing. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us to talk about what needs fixing. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. The cool thing about Super Bowl parades is that they're right after your team wins the big game. Like, within hours of victory, city officials go, all right, everyone, clear the streets. We're about to party. You gotta fight for your right to party! And so yesterday, less than 72 hours after the Kansas City Chiefs' thrilling overtime victory, hundreds of thousands of fans were descending on Grand Boulevard in downtown KC. A huge rally was planned at Union Station, and people were having a great time. Kansas City! Everyone's got cameras there. We had sent reporters of our own. There were helicopters watching this from overhead. So everyone's watching. That's when we start to notice people fleeing. Uh, We've got a... Crowds are dispersing. And it looks like they're running. Yeah, we might have a situation here we're trying to keep an eye on. There were reports of gunfire. Soon, the nation was watching attendees being loaded onto stretchers. There was a man just weeping, weeping, and he said, my nephew was shot, my nephew was shot. It now appears more than 20 people were shot. One person is dead, several more in critical condition, and what was expected to be a day of celebration has now become the latest example of American gun violence. I said we had sent reporters there. ABC's Alex Perez was on hand as this turned deadly. He joins us now. Alex, first off, just what was it like to be there? Well, Brad, it's hard to explain just how quickly this went from a joyous celebration to complete chaos and fear as people were running for their lives. Thank you, Kansas City. Thank you, Chiefs Kingdom. The rally was just about to wrap up. The players were just about to leave the stage. And as you said, there were uh, thousands of people that came out. Classes were canceled. Tons of kids were here celebrating the chiefs. And then that's when gunfire rung out. Just think about having that many people that close together. If you hear gunfire, the immediate reaction is to run, run away from it. And that's exactly what happened. All of a sudden, people started crushing forward. Everybody started running. There was screaming. We didn't know what was happening, but this day and age when people run, you run. People who were way on the other side of the field also started running, not really knowing why they were running, but simply because they saw other people running. And so that chaos and confusion really, really created uh, this fear. So we ran into a hallway and a janitor said, come into this area. We went where an elevator was. We shut the doors and sat back against the doors and we prayed and there was yelling. I talked to one woman who told me she actually jumped on top of her daughter and covered her daughter with her body because she didn't know what was going to happen. And if anyone was shot, 
she didn't want it to be her daughter. So countless stories like that here after this shooting. Right. And, and then the count of people affected by this just seemed to keep rising. Like first it was, yes, there's one person dead and maybe a few more injured. Then it was more than 10 injured. Now it's well over 20 injured from gunfire from this. Police have now been giving news briefings overnight. I mean, what do we know as we zoom out about what actually happened step by step? Yeah, well, you have to remember, this was a big event that the city prepared for. So there were hundreds of officers all over the place, about 800 officers specifically assigned just to monitor this area with thousands of people. And then there were 24 other law enforcement agencies who were brought in to help keep things safe. Yet with all those officers on the scene, we still had this shooting. At the conclusion of the chief's rally today, there were shots fired on the west side of Union Station. Authorities have told us that they believe there was some sort of altercation that led to the shooting uh, near the west side of Union Station here in Kansas City. To the people who were injured in this tragedy, our hearts go out to you and your families. This investigation is just beginning and we are working safely to clear all surrounding areas and businesses. That gunfire erupted, uh, striking a number of people, including children, young children who were here to celebrate their team. And uh, that all happened in seconds, Brad. In just seconds, it went from a celebration to complete chaos. Who did this and why? I mean, is this somebody firing into the crowd or are these people with a beef who happen to have guns? I mean, why did this happen? Well, the exact motive, Brad, is still under investigation. At this point, authorities uh, tell me they, they don't believe this was an act of terrorism, but the police chief says th there were multiple bad actors here who got into some sort of disagreement or argument and decided to take care of this and handle whatever they were arguing about in the middle of this crowd. We were here for a safe celebration. And because of two bad actors or more, it is why we're standing here today. There are some suspects in custody and a firearm has been recovered. Um, but an exact motive, why exactly they did this, still remains under investigation. So as soon as uh, these shots rang out, uh, authorities were immediately right there where the suspects were. In fact, uh, an officer was captured on camera tackling uh, someone. Uh, there's another video that shows actually a few bystanders who actually ran towards the gunfire and tackled some people who were trying to run away. No, no. Oh, we tackled them. We tackled them. When, when we tackled them, the gun came out. Kansas City, like a lot of big cities, is coping and dealing with on an everyday basis a, a crime problem, a gun violence problem. And this was another reminder of that problem. This is the 48th mass shooting across the country so far this year, Brad. So uh, this problem is not a new one. It's just one that continues to happen and continues to impact people's lives. And, you know, from the people I talk to here, a lot of them are just fed up. They want to see America confront this issue, not only for the victims that were injured, but for also the thousands of people who were traumatized after seeing what happened. And you've said it's the 48th mass shooting, according to the Gun Violence Archive. There have only been 46 days in the year. Um, Alex Perez, they're in Kansas City right now. So glad you're safe. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, this goes way beyond a space race. The new concerns about Russian nukes after the break. 
We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. When something is classified, that can mean a lot of things. In theory, more than a million Americans have access to documents labeled top secret, but rarely is anything that widely circulated actually going to make waves, which is why it was so strange yesterday when a secret report started making its way around Washington about Russia's ambitions in space, perhaps even ambitions that involve nuclear weapons up there. Multiple people confirmed this report's existence to ABC News, but one lawmaker considered this information so explosive, so violent vital to national security that he demanded President Biden declassify it at once, and he said he wanted to share it with as many lawmakers as he could. Let's go to ABC's Ann Flaherty, who's covering the Pentagon. Ann, first of all, I mean, nukes in space? What What is the threat that these lawmakers are even referring to? Well, first, Brad, the, what I want to start with is saying, you know, if you're up at night worrying about a nuclear weapon dropping on your house from space— that is actually not what we're talking about right now. Uh, so going back into the 1960s, U.S. Russia signed a treaty that says um, it, we're not going to put any weapons of mass destruction in outer space, certainly not in orbit. So what we were told yesterday is uh, from two people familiar with these deliberations on Capitol Hill is that there is new intelligence and it has to do with Russia wanting to put a nuclear weapon into space. This wouldn't be to drop a nuclear weapon onto Earth, but rather to possibly use it against satellites. So what we know is that there has always been this interest in kind of anti-satellite technology, um, particularly from Russia. Um, but this is very alarming. One person we spoke to said this is very concerning and sensitive. They called it, quote, a big deal. Mm. So without having access to the classified intelligence itself, the question here really appears to be, you know, what is Russia looking at? And, you know, if Russia is looking at a technology that could be used against other satellites, we know that could be a couple different things. We know that, one, you can use missiles to destroy satellites in space. The U.S. has done this. Russia has done this. The other thing that they're talking about is sending a, a nuclear weapon up into space to essentially disable an entire constellation of satellites that could be very damaging to the U.S. Wait, like a like a nuclear like it would blast them like a nuclear explosion. Yeah, they're talking about kind of an electromagnetic pulse or something that would essentially create such a disturbance in space that it would render the any nearby satellite to be essentially useless. That would be a huge deal for a country like the U.S., but many other countries as well. Right. You know, I spoke with one. Uh, weapons expert who said, OK, they could do that. It would also be like launching World War III. It would be a really big deal um, for Russia to even consider this. So, you know, without ha seeing this in this intelligence that the House lawmakers have, um, we can't really say how big of a threat this is. We do know that uh, the White House and officials have gone uh, out to the public to say, OK, we need to take a breath here. I saw Chairman Turner's statement on the issue. 
And I, I want to assure the American people there is no need for public alarm. They really tried to tamp down those fears that uh, Russia is really escalating um, any kind of nuclear tensions. And so, OK, so that's the actual report. That's the classified information that we've been reporting on now over the last 24 hours. Can we talk about how this even came to pass? Because this wasn't sort of your normal, hey, we heard from a source. This was like a, a lawmaker sort of publicly saying there's a huge problem in this arena. So the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, is a Republican from Ohio. He basically just tweets, you know, I, we've got this intelligence that's been made available to us, this information concerning, quote, a serious national security threat. Um, and he says, I'm requesting Biden to declassify all of it so that we can talk about it in the open. And then what's more is that he says, I'm going to provide a secure location so that every member can get access to this information. This is, you know, 435 members of Congress being able to get access to this raw intelligence data. But it's really, really unusual for members of Congress to get access to intelligence without being briefed from the administration, military experts, intelligence experts, providing them context and background and all of those things that you would need to interpret that intelligence. Our understanding is those briefings are happening. The administration is trying to reach out and provide Congress what they need to understand this. I personally reached out to the Gang of Eight. It is highly unusual, in fact, for the National Security Advisor to do that. But it was certainly this example of where the cart got ahead of the horse. For several hours yesterday, Washington essentially ground to a halt as everybody ran around trying to figure out, are we going to war with Russia? And the answer to that right now, no. Yeah, the politics are kind of bizarre, right? Because on one hand, you got lawmakers jockeying in an election year to make their party look strong on national security. On the other hand, Mike Turner is known as a Russia hawk. He's deeply concerned about Vladimir Putin as a national adversary. You wonder if he's hearing somebody like former President Donald Trump say Russia should do what it wants to NATO countries, if that's made this all seem even more urgent. Uh, either way, just bizarre kind of disclosure here. Uh, and Flaherty at the Pentagon. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. You might remember that in year one of the Biden presidency, Congress passed a big bipartisan infrastructure funding package. Well, that money doesn't all get sent out the door at once, of course. For the last couple of years, the Department of Transportation has been examining how it would get some of that money to airports. And this morning, they are out with a list of airports that will split nearly a billion dollars in improvement funds. Guess what? We got the Secretary of Transportation himself with us right now, Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Thanks for being with us, Secretary. What is in this package? So what's in this package is funding to improve airports in 44 states and three territories, nearly a billion dollars. And it's just the latest round of infrastructure improvements that we are announcing through President Biden's infrastructure plan. What excites me about this is that uh, this is a mix of things that you might consider back of house. In other words, uh, electrical, mechanical, uh, things that most passengers will never see, mm. but also things that you will see and will lead to a better experience, better flow and better design for getting through security in some airports. Uh, jet bridges that you probably don't think about that much, but if one ever gets stuck, that is a huge pain when you're just trying to get off the flight and everything in between. And we've got airports of all sizes, uh, projects of all kinds, and uh, just really excited to be able to uh, share the good news about the uh, the many airports that, uh, that we're supporting through this, more than 100 airports getting uh, support just through today's announcement. Right. Like I'm looking at the list right now. There are some projects like at Dulles where like you're literally building new terminals. But then at like LAX, where it's like traffic improvements. Right. There are restrooms being built. So it's sort of all over the map. Um, 
you know, I, I think a lot of people go to an airport right now and they're wondering, am I on one of those Boeing Max 9s? We've now learned that the Alaska Airlines plane that had that door plug blown off of it was missing bolts that were supposed to be reinstalled and they weren't. I mean, does any of this funding go towards inspections or measures that ensure flyers are safe? Uh, that's a, a separate uh, uh, part of the budget. But uh, yes, uh, a big part of what our FAA budget goes toward is the oversight uh, and the, the regulatory work that keeps passengers safe. I take this very seriously and very personally. Uh, yesterday, I was sitting in the exit row next to the door on a 737 MAX 9 uh, myself. I know a lot of passengers are uh, asking questions, and it's one of the reasons why the FAA put Boeing under a microscope, not only to make sure every one of these planes was inspected and was a thousand percent safe before it returned to service, but more generally. Uh, frankly, I have concerns and the uh, FAA has concerns about the safety culture at Boeing. And so more resources and more uh, scrutiny is going to go into making sure that everything that comes out of there is safe and they will not be allowed to increase their production until and unless they demonstrate that they can do that safely. Is the oversight system we have in place enough, though? Because for years, the line has basically been that the FAA leaves a lot of the actual safety work on Boeing planes to Boeing itself. And like after the MAX crashes in 2018, 2019, we did see some design changes. We saw some FAA staffing changes. But since then, we still had this we still had this door plug issue. We had these misdrilled holes and some other fuselages on MAXs. Does the government actually have the oversight it needs to ensure plane safety? That's exactly what's being reevaluated right now. Mm -hmm. There's always been a balance between the FAA's role in establishing what the safety standards are and the company's role in proving or demonstrating that they've met those safety standards. That's in terms of how a plane is designed. This was the issue that the, uh, the MAX had a few years ago. And then making sure, no matter how good your design is, uh, that it's actually manufactured according to that design. That's where these quality control issues are coming into play. And I think everything needs to be on the table right now in terms of how that oversight works. We, we can't ever treat safety as a destination that we've just reached. On one hand, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Thing. That a form of travel like flying, where you're using flammable liquids to be propelled through the air at the speed of sound, is by far the safest way to travel in the United States. Uh, but the most important thing is not to take for granted that that's the case, but to recognize that anytime we learn something, not only from a crash, and there hasn't been a fatal crash in 15 years, but from anything that could have led to a crash or a fatality, which is the posture that the FAA has right now. Yeah, because so you're saying like all things are on the table, but I mean, are there actual changes? I'm thinking like Boeing has 12,000 employees at its plant in Washington. FAA used to have, I think, two inspectors there. Now it's got eight. I mean, is that going to change? Are you just saying it's still being evaluated? Well, even right now, we have dozens of boots on the ground conducting a deep dive and an audit of FAA. But there is a bigger question uh, to fully take on some of the functions that are currently delegated to Boeing. Uh, would take an act of Congress, mm. and it would potentially take thousands of new people at FAA. Uh, in order to do that, we would have to be budgeted for that, and we would have to be authorized for that. But the only thing that should drive any of these debates is safety and and uh, answering the question, what is the safest possible structure going forward? Yeah, we said no fatal crashes in U.S. airspace in the last 15 years, but those MAX crashes were fatal. They had just been sold by our American company to foreign airlines, so they happened overseas. Um one other thing I'd like to ask you about, Secretary, you ran for the presidency in 2020. You said it is time for a generational change at the time. You said the years ahead of us can't be led by the men of the past, basically. Now you work for the Biden administration. President Biden has said his memory is fine. His mental stamina is fine. But he's also an 81-year-old man. So, I mean, if your pitch back in 2020 was we need younger leaders, 
Is that still the case four years later? Well, because the youngest member of the cabinet, obviously, I believe that uh, young leaders have a lot to offer. Uh, I think at the end of the day, what matters most uh, in when you think of all of the strengths and weaknesses each of us brings to the job, age, youth, experience, originality, judgment, it's are you making good decisions and are you doing a good job? And I'm proud of the job that President Biden has done. And I'm proud to be involved with the, with the work that he's leading, whether it's fixing airports uh, or driving down the cost of uh, of, of insulin to $35 a, a month for seniors or getting rid of junk fees or uh, finally dealing with climate change with the biggest, most significant uh, action on climate that's been undertaken by any nation in human history. And I think what that demonstrates is the focus on the future that's reflected not just in the age of any individual member of the government, but in the actual policy decisions that are being made. And this administration's policy policies for about the future. You're proud of the decisions he's made. Are you confident in his ability to do the job, though, two, three, four years from now? Yeah, I wish everybody could be in a room with him the way that I often am and see the level of detail in his attention to the issues that we work on and the intensity that that he brings uh, to uh, all of the things that, that we're responsible for. Uh, he's a leader that uh, has challenged me to be better at my job. And I think that's part of why you have the historic results that we're getting out of this administration. All right, Secretary Pete Buttigieg. I wanted to ask you, by the way, can we do anything about like TSA people yelling at me in the line? I always feel like that's the most chaotic part of the airport experience. <laughs> I'll tell them to stop it. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good day. Take care. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, fake it till you make it, or at least until you own the building. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. And one last thing. You ever host a party and one guest just won't leave? You've turned off the music, you've thrown out the trash, and they still just can't take a hint. Now imagine that guest is overstaying their welcome and claiming your house is now theirs. For years, a guy named Mickey Barreto has held himself out as the rightful owner of the New Yorker Hotel, this iconic Art Deco building right in the heart of, of Midtown Manhattan. That's ABC senior investigative correspondent Aaron Katursky following the story of a New York City man named Mickey Barreto, who was recently charged with several counts of false filings. But the charging documents are way more bizarre than that. It all started back in 2018. So according to charging documents, five years ago, this guy checks into the New Yorker Hotel, which is pretty nice, and gets a room. I think it was, you know, $149 a night. The next day, instead of checking out, he apparently goes to hotel management and says, I'd actually like to lease this room the way you'd rent an apartment. The hotel says, no thanks. Barreto left his belongings inside the room, kind of claiming his turf, and, and then he left, and he was evicted from the hotel. They gathered up the belongings and tossed him out. But Barreto took the hotel to court, and due to a quirk in the city's rent stabilization laws, he was actually able to claim the room. See, back in the day, after World War II, there used to be all these New York hotels populated by single men looking for work and a clean bed. The city saw to it that certain hotels had to offer them leases. Under rent stabilization laws, the New Yorker, despite now operating as a Wyndham, is still one of those hotels. So Barreto moved in and allegedly didn't stop there, filing paperwork with city agencies, claiming that now because he legally resided in one room, he was actually an owner of the entire property. 
He demanded rent from its tenants, and he registered the hotel under his name with city agencies for, you know, water and sewage payments. And then he demanded the hotel's bank transfer accounts to him. Dude was allegedly walking around like he owned the place. In fact, he allegedly called the fire department at one point, identifying himself as the owner, telling them the building had to be evacuated. And while these ploys often didn't work, it's tough to deny someone like that in the moment because he knows laws and housing policies better than anyone else on site. Well, yesterday, prosecutors proposed a new address for him, a jail cell. He was arrested. Uh, And he is charged with 14 felony counts of filing a false instrument, 10 misdemeanor counts of criminal contempt, uh, and uh, prosecutors intend to take this all the way to trial. Now, Barreto hasn't been convicted. In fact, he hasn't even had a chance to plea yet. He's continued to proclaim he owns this building despite court rulings to the contrary. But I can't help think of how many other famous swindlers have tried schemes that sound something like this. Inventing Anna, the dropout, the fire fest to the world. These are stories of people boldly proclaiming, almost pathologically, to own that which they do not own, to have status they have not earned. It's possible anywhere, but it's always easier when you've got antiquated laws on your side and some bureaucracy to boot. All this reminds me, by the way, ABC News Studios has a new installment of its documentary, The Housewife and the Hustler. I don't need to tell my Bravo fans about this. It's about the celebrity TV housewife Erica Jane and her husband, the lawyer Tom Girardi. Fascinating story. I'm going to be extra careful opening my next hotel door. Who knows what dude is camping out there? I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Thank you.